Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Betterment was built to answer the question, what is the best way to invest my money? Betterment customers believe technology can help improve their daily lives. Do you use Uber, Netflix, or Amazon? Betterment customers are just like you. And they're probably just like me, although I'm a little bit older than maybe the actual target audience. I wish I was younger. I wish that both uh, Uber, Netflix, and Amazon had been around when I was um, in college and just starting out saving money. I wish that Betterment had been around when I was just out of college and starting to save money or not save money, as the case may be. Um, You know, money was scary to me. Uh, I don't there's probably some deep psychological reasons why, and maybe we'll do an episode about it. But um, I didn't even like looking at my my balance. Um, I was just scared to know how much money I had. I, I literally would just, I knew when I was out of money when my ATM card was declined. That's not a good way to go about uh, spending. It's definitely not a good way to go about saving. I wish that I had Betterment. They make investing straightforward. You create an account, you tell them your financial situation, and their advice platform builds a personalized portfolio for your goals and desired level of risk. So I could have done that and then just like forgotten about it. I mean, I probably would have helped me get over my fear of checking my balance, but I also could have just set it and forget it, as they say. Now, for each goal, retirement, house down payment, et cetera, you set, you determine how aggressive or conservative you want to be. And based on this information, Betterment will take care of the underlying investments and implement tax-saving strategies. Oh, and don't even get me started on taxes when I was younger. Yeah. Don't be a freelancer, kids. Or actually, if you're a freelancer, do what I do now, which is actually I just save 30% of everything that I get. So helpful tip. That's not from Betterment. That is from me. Um, Betterment has tools and calculators that give you an idea of what your investment strategy could look like, probably more precise than 30% of freelance income. There is always risk in investing, however. With Betterment, they help you avoid the emotion and sales tactics that often plague the financial industry. Investing involves risk. With friends like these, listeners can get one month managed free, though. That's not much risk. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash friends. Again, that's Betterment.com slash friends. Betterment. Investing made better. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, a show about difficult conversations and differences between people. This week's show is going to tackle some big issues, uh, some of the biggest, in fact, including God. That's in the second part of the show. Um, I'm going to talk to Liz Brunig, who's a writer and essayist and editor at The Washington Post, who writes about uh, Christianity and politics, and we're going to tackle... An issue that um, no one has uh, been asking us to talk about, but it's been on my mind a lot lately, especially 
really lately, which is the problem of prayer. Uh, how do you keep doing it uh, when the world seems to not be responding to it? And very specifically, the entity you're talking to doesn't seem to be responding to it. Um, prayer by its nature is a somewhat lonely endeavor, uh, I think. And so it was helpful to talk to Liz, making it a little less lonely. And that's the big issue in the second part. In the first part of the show, I talked to Bob Inglis, who's a former South Carolina congressman and former climate change denier, who is now the head of RepublicEN.org, which is a conservative climate change advocacy organization. He is all about finding conservative and market-based solutions to climate change. He believes in climate change. As, as someone who was from the reddest part of the reddest state, which is South Carolina, who was a, a someone who said uh, if Al Gore was for it, he was against it. That was his primary way of thinking about climate change. He had a really interesting evolution, which you can read about um, in a few different interviews. It's been a while now for him. I actually wanted to talk to him more about what's going on in his life now, which is that he is an activist among conservatives for climate change. And he's constantly having the kinds of conversations that we talk about on the show. He is having conversations with people who diametrically oppose what it is he, he would like to, them to get on board with. And I think that he has some great like real life, real practical tips for those of us that want to engage, especially on this issue. And he is the first guest coming right up. Welcome to the show, Bob Inglis, former congressman and executive director of, am I pronouncing it right, RepublicIn.org? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, good to be with you, Anna. Yeah, we call it RepublicIn.org so okay. people can find it on Google. Google wants to change the spelling to Republican, <laughs> but we're different. We even spell it differently. So it's RepublicIn.org. RepublicIn, as in Republican and energy together, which is what you're your cause is essentially um, conservative approaches to solving climate change, right? That's right. So I have a couple of things right off the bat. Like I've, we know each other. I, I know your story. Um, it's an amazing kind of journey that you had about be being from the reddest part of the reddest state, you know, South Carolina, being an incredible critic of Al Gore. And then over time, partially because of your children, coming to embrace the, the idea that climate change is real. And now that is what you do with some urgency is try to get other conservatives on board for this. Is that, Am I summarizing an incredible, you know, glossing over a lot of things? Is that a correct summation? Yeah, that's, a, that's the way it is. And, you know, really it's what it is. It's the best idea I came across while I was in Congress. And it was a, a metamorphosis for me because, you know, it, it, at first I was a disputer of the climate science. I didn't know anything about it except that Al Gore was for it. But then after after that metamorphosis you've just described, um, I looked into it and, and came across this solution that is, is really a pretty exciting solution that fits with what conservatives deeply believe, but it also fits with uh, progressives like Al Gore. So Ultimately, I believe we're going to bring America together and lead the world to a solution on climate change. And I want to encourage people to look into the specifics of the policy solution you're talking about, which has to do with a carbon tax offset by tax cuts elsewhere. Again, grossly simplifying, but I, there's some other stuff I want to get to. So uh, they can go to the website and find out more about that. Yes. And it is it is a, and it is a very market based 
um, solution. But it is the headline, for, I think, for a lot of our listeners is that you came to believe in climate change. So you actually deal with it not necessarily in a familiar way, but maybe the maybe the what you can share some experience, strength, and hope from is the fact that you do talk to conservative uh, politicians a lot who aren't necessarily climate change realists, um, and you do some evangelism around that. What does that approach involve? Well, you know, um, uh, oddly, I, I, I would here congratulate Kellyanne Conway for something that she does uh, ra- rather uh, <laughs> rather well, unfortunately, but uses it to bad effect. And that is, she listens to the question and then picks out a word and then runs with that word in a completely different direction. Now, that's the diabolical part of Kellyanne Conway. <laughs> the part that I would say that actually is good is to listen to the question and then try to find some point of agreement because um, this is not just, um, I mean, it's a little bit deeper than what I'm about to say, you know, but but, uh, uh, what I'm thinking about here is a, a standard thing that's taught in public speaking classes, you know, is go look at the Mark Anthony speech, you know, and how I'm not here to praise Caesar, I'm here to bury him. And Brutus is an honorable man. And then he says that over and over and over. And by the time you get the end of it, you know that Brutus is a traitor and a beast. And so, <laughs> um, so Kellyanne Conway knows how to listen to Mark Anthony's speech, too, and figure out how to turn that around. But what, what we need to do, in, 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 in not in the kingdom of darkness there, but in the kingdom of light, is try to listen carefully and then find some commonality to talk with them about. And so if you hear their concern about climate change, for example, let's take climate change. I think that what you're going to hear is an awful lot of guilt and some fear um, and a sense of hopelessness. Mm. And that all, that concoction leads to denial. Mm. Um, And so we we need to unpack that a little bit. And when you when you hear that, give people the grace of saying, "Well, we just didn't know, did we? We mm. didn't know that burning all these fossil fuels was going to cause all this trouble." Now maybe we should have known, but we didn't know. Uh, but now we know, and so now we can do something about it and then go into how, you know, there really are things we can do about it. Then you increase the sense of efficacy. People have been working with you and they're not feeling like you're shaming them. Mm-hmm. And so I got all kinds of theories, as you can tell on about how to how to approach people on that subject. Well, I mean, this is I want to hear almost all of them, because seriously, um, this is the basically the point of the show in many ways. It's a, one of the points of the show is to try and figure out how to talk to people and try to, and and one of the tenets that I have and I, I've shared this with you in the past is that you have to go into it without the idea that I am going to convince this person right like it has to be a, an approach of humility um even if you know you're right even if you feel yeah. with all your all your heart that climate change is real and people who deny it are idiots you know or yeah you have to change your thinking a little bit actually um I would say that if you go into a conversation with any kind of sense of people who just died or idiots, you're probably not going to have much success, right? Like, because people can tell when you think that. 
but you right. can believe that climate change is real and you can you can know that in your bones and believe the science but you still have to approach a conversation with someone who's a skeptic or denier with some humility about the the need or the desire to change their mind like it has to be sort of offered up on a on a, with an open hand to them rather than as you know is especially current reference uh, in our politics today, a fist, you know, like it has to be an open-handed, like, here is something that I believe. What do you think of it? I mean, I think that if you go into something with trying to convince people, they can tell, they feel condescended to. Yeah. Well, and I must confess, uh, I'm not too good at part of that. (laughs) The part that I can sometimes pull off is the humility, Uh Um, and I'm not always. Uh, The part that I'm really not very good at is the open-handed nature of what you described, because I'm a lawyer, a commercial real estate lawyer. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I want to convince people. And uh, so uh, I'm not real good at what at, at part of what you're describing there. Uh, but if you can if you can balance that with enough humility just to try to help them, even if you want to convince them, which I typically do. And, of course, that's my day job now at RepublicEN.org is to try to convince conservatives. Is it um, so I guess I'm well cast as a lawyer making the case. Mm-hmm. But um, but. Um, if you go into it at least with trying to understand what their concern is, and um, here's the concern. I mean, if we take climate change specifically, the concern that a lot of conservatives have is that they've heard about a big government that's going to come and solve this problem with regulations or with a very complex trading scheme. And they think, this is like inspired by the UN, and it's got the Wall Street traders in it on cap and trade. It got the government bureaucrats um, telling us what to do through regulations and the Clean Power Plan, and it's got the godless scientist um, mm-hmm. telling us we got a problem. Well, there's nothing in that paragraph that's attractive to conservatives, and so and it's actually pretty fearful. I mean, all those things are like, wait, I don't want any of that. And so it just engenders a a rejection, a sort of a regurgitation, you know, just a, just a, a reflex of uh, of regurgitation. Uh, and so, so what we do at RepublicEN.org is try to unpack that and first identify with them, maybe a little bit like I'm talking about with Mark Antony in the speech about uh, burying Caesar, is to say, you know, you're right. What What's happened so many times is that the liberals gin up controversy and tell us about these woeful bad cases. And then they jam through some regulations and some tax increases. They take away liberty. They grow the size of the nanny state. No wonder we're not interested in acting on climate. And so, but now that we've got that point of agreement that we don't want that either, could we consider the possibility that there's a small government answer? That really all it is is accountability. All it is is putting all the cost in on all the fuels and making them available to a transparent marketplace so that we see the full health and climate cost at the meter, at our power meter, and at the gas pump. If you do that, then in the liberty of enlightened self-interest, we 
will change, and we will uh, seek out products that don't have those costs associated with them. And entrepreneurs will create those products and sell them to us. They'll make money, create jobs, will create wealth, will expand the economy. And so isn't it exciting to be a climate realist and an energy optimist? And so at that point, it's a completely different, okay, we can deal with this then, can't we? We're not, we're not acquiescing to the left and feeling guilty about all this. We're charging forward as, as very excited capitalists out to solve a problem and, uh, by the way, make a lot of money while we're doing it. I have to say it saddens me a little bit that the appeal that you use, which does sound very effective, um, has some of its some of its attractiveness is based in, you know, reifying the divide between left and right, you know, by say, by going ahead and agreeing that are on our shared enemy, the liberals, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is. A, it is a problem because, you know, and, and really. You know, here I am at the outset, I said that uh, we believe there's a way to bring America together, you know, that progressives and conservatives actually agree. And then we go and we name our outfit RepublicEN.org. Right. Well, that's that's uh, that's confirming the partisan divide, isn't it? I mm-hmm. mean, it's, and, and so we we admit to that. Um, and, but there's a, there's a message of the madness. And here's what it is. We think that in addition to this concern about the growth of government, um, there's another uh, psychoanalysis that we do of ourselves as conservatives, and that is that we think we have an inferiority complex when it comes to energy and climate. Hmm. Uh, We conservatives just think we're no good when it comes to energy and climate. We don't have an answer. And so when the topic comes up, you bring it up, let's say, on a I shrink in science denial because because I don't, I don't want to talk about that because I don't think I'm equipped to talk about it. And so what we think we've got to do is go to conservatives and say, and basically buck them up. And build up their confidence. The poor, fragile, white male conservatives. Oh, so sad. Yeah, you're really good. You've got the answer here. You know the answer. The answer is a level playing field where fuels compete honestly. And the only role for government is being the honest cop on the beat that says, okay, ladies and gentlemen, all cost in, all subsidies out, now compete. And we'll watch you and make sure you're revealing all your cost. And we'll take away all the subsidies and now compete fairly. And so that that's a, once conservatives start feeling like they can enter the competition of ideas, then they can stop shrinking in science denial. You know, an example is, you know, if, if you talk to me about this silly marathon you want me to run in, well, I don't want to run 26 miles. So every time you bring it up, I'm going to change the subject to, well, why don't we go swimming a little bit or maybe a little bike ride? Um, but I don't want to enter that competition with you about a marathon because I don't want to go that far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, so that's what we do. We, we confess or admit that it is. It is driving the partisan divide a little bit, but but it, it's with the hope that once empowered, conservative conservatives um, can send leaders down to the river to meet with the other tribes' leaders. The reason that conservative leaders don't leave the tents of the conservative tribe to go down to the river 
is if they step out, out from underneath that tent, they get stabbed in the back, first mm-hmm. of all, by people inside the tent, because people inside the tent are so frightened that they don't have an answer to the question that they think their leader is going to sell them out down at the river. So we go into the tent and we say, listen, our tribe's really good. Give it a war whoop. We're really good. Free enterprise can solve climate change. Now, send them down to the river. Once they get down there, they're going to find Al Gore at the river. And Al's going to say, well, of course, that's a great answer. That's what I've been for about 30 years. I want to I want to drill down a little bit on your metaphor because I, I want to make sure I understand it, which is the idea of this marathon. We have a lot of Greek themes going on here, I think. Like there's tents and Mark Antony, um, Romans too, I guess. Yes. Um, so, uh, the marathon is climate change and you go to a Republican who's a, let's just say a typical male, white, conservative member of Congress, not probably in shape to run a marathon, let's say, knows it, knows he's not in shape to run this climate change marathon. So when you talk about it, he's like, no, thanks. Even if you're saying we want to be on a team with you, you're saying, he's like, no, no, no marathon, no. And so what you say is like, no, we're going to be on a team together against the liberals to run this marathon. And it's not so hard. I think you can do it. You can do it. We can do it together. Like we're going to run this marathon. And I believe that you have the strength to do this marathon. Well, the only thing that's different than what you just said is we don't necessarily say against the liberals. We think the race is against climate change itself. And so in that, but we, we do in the naming of Republican.org, in the talking about right. how, yeah, there have been big government solutions only offered, and uh, we've got to show this different solution. But what we want to make the race is against climate change, mm-hmm. because we think once we get running that race, we'll realize Al Gore is running right beside us. I mean, and actually, he's got the same answer, mm-hmm. um, which is tax carbon dioxide untaxed income or dividend the money back, apply the tax on imports so that it makes it in our trading partner's interest to get in on the same thing. We have then a worldwide pricing of carbon dioxide into products, which creates a, an incentive for entrepreneurs to fill the, the desire of consumers to lower their cost by buying the cl- better, cleaner, cheaper fuels of the future. And so at that point, if we can then feel confident about ourselves, then we can say, okay, we can extend a hand to Al Gore and let's, let's shake hands on this deal and get it done. But when you, when you don't feel good about your position, you can't extend the hand because you don't, you, you, you think that you're inadequate somehow. You know, it's funny. I think the psychoanalysis, you know, it hits home. It's, to me, it sounds like it, it 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 hits the target. It's confirmed a suspicion that progressives have had. And I was about to talk about that suspicion that progressives have had about, like, you know, the fragility of conservatives around certain issues. But it's also true probably that progressives have some issues that they feel ill-equipped to talk about and therefore react badly in talking about solutions. Um, I would say gun control might be one of them. Yeah. Like you say uh-huh. gun control to a, a, a liberal progressive person and they f- know they don't know much about guns and perhaps react without – even though like, I'm a, I am for common sense gun control myself, like, but I am also a gun owner and think that guns are not terrible. <laughs> so um, I sort of feel like I can have that conversation perhaps better than some other you know progressives who simply um, have more uh, – 
knee-jerk reactions, right? Like we want to avoid knee-jerk reactions. We want to speak to someplace we're informed about. And the knee-jerk reactions come when we're, we aren't informed. They come from when we're insecure and we and, and aren't sure about what this what a more nuanced solution is, maybe. Right. And when we can conjure up a boogeyman on the scene that's really nefariously back there trying to destroy us. So, for example, another example that I would use about progressive inadequacy and, and frankly, just wrong position is on genetically modified organisms. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's... The reason I think that progressives, uh, I would guess, I'm not a progressive, but let me just, I don't know that tribe all that well, but if I could from afar diagnose them, what I would say is that they see Monsanto and other terrible corporate villains trying to, in their labs, come up with terrible things that are going to destroy the earth. Um or unleash things that they don't understand that end up destroying the earth. And so because that boogeyman's on the scene and they don't trust corporations and they don't trust um, their labs, they think it's all bad. But when you stop and think about it, there are people in Africa dependent on cassava. That plant is being destroyed by a fungus. It is possible to genetically modify cassava so that it can resist that fungus. Why, in the name of heaven, would we not say absolutely somebody figure out how to fix the cassava plant and save save people from starvation? Now, of course, we do need to be careful that we don't unleash something in the environment that's dangerous. But on the other hand, you know, the, the modifications to cassava could be really helpful to humankind. Um, and so, but because there may be progressives like conservatives on climate change don't feel that they are comfortable with the people that are moving because conservatives on climate change have seen, you know, the UN, the Wall Street traders, uh, the government bureaucrats, that's who's been the moving parties mm-hmm. and the godless scientists. Um, in Can't the forget case the godless scientists. GMOs <laughs> on the on the uh, on the left. What they're concerned about is they see Monsanto and other evil corporations um, acting in their financial interest, and they don't trust them. And right. so it, it, it does boil down to trust. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. So I do a fair amount of travel for business, and I. Um, have had some bad experiences. This is like the bad experience ad roll episode of With Friends Like These. Um, not too long ago, actually, I booked a place um, without paying um, enough attention, and it turned out to be um, less than ideal. And I was kind of stranded in this strange city um, with uh, at a place that, um, you know, I mean, there weren't any active um, deals of any kind being made in the hallways, but I was suspicious about it. And I wish that I had used Upside um, because they specialize in business travel. They specialize in booking things, uh, travel, uh, like hotels and flights together. Um, And it's, you know, targeted at business travelers. And I I guess I have have trouble remembering that that's what I am. I am doing this for work. Also, you save money not just on, you know, bundling your hotel and flight, but you also get a free Amazon gift card worth hundreds of dollars every time you use Upside. Now, like I said, they bundle flights and hotels together. Uh, they save you money and you still 
You have to keep your miles, which is actually the reason why sometimes I still book my own travel, even why even when other people say that they'll they'd happily do it for me. I want the miles because I'm a miles pig. Um, that's a weird thing that happens when you get older. You start to really care about um, airline miles. Right now, if you use the code FRIENDS, you are guaranteed a $100 Amazon gift card for your first time using the service. Again, that's upside uh, travel. They they book everything for you, but you get to keep the miles. You get to like be the one in charge. Um, but it's the ease and convenience of dealing with a business travel uh, agency. Again, my code FRIENDS will get you a $100 Amazon gift card and save. you'll save on the other stuff that you're booking every time. Upside.com, my offer code is FRIENDS. There is a minimum purchase required. See the site for complete details. I have this strange feeling that, in a way, both sides have rational fears, you know? Like, it is true that government can run, uh, run amok. And and be oppressive, right? It is true that the state can g- get too uh, entrenched um, in policy and be too um, micromanaged too much, right? It is also true that corporations can behave incredibly badly and and create things that are beyond their control. So both sides have like a rational set of fears. And in fact, what I always think about when I think about the reasons why it's worth it to try and understand an ideological opposite's point of view is that I know myself really well. And I know that in any given policy situation, like my instinct is going to be to trust the government and not trust the corporations, right? Like that's just, you tell, you describe a policy to me and, and I'm going to kind of gravitate to the one that is imbued with more trust in government and less trust in corporations. But I also recognize I may not always be right. My fear may not always be, the one that's the most grounded. So I want to be able to talk to someone who sees the world differently, who sees the opposite, you know, and whose skepticism is is about government and not corporations. Because maybe that's the solution that's the actual better solution. But I'm not seeing it because I know that my primary fear is about corporations rather than government. Yeah, I think that's uh, what you've just described is uh, should be uh, the uh, the, the thing that we do, um, I think um, if you do that, you're you're uh, better than I am because most often I don't want to know what the other side thinks. To tell you the honest truth, um, and so you know it it, it is a uh, um, you know because it's a threat to my confidence. You know if I'm hearing, for example, uh, but uh, you know take that GMO example. Um, I if I um, think about it. Yes, I can see how corporations have, in fact, been villains yes. at times. I mean, Bob, come real on. villains. <laughs> um, and so, when it uh, when that uh, it comes to mind, um, I get worried about the, the you know the, the how solid my position is, and so I start sort of hedging. Anyway, so but yeah, the best thing to do is what you just described: is be open to hearing that. Yeah, let's balance this, and of course that's. That's the reality, you know, is uh, uh, the big divide in our country seems to me is between people who believe in meritocracies, who believe in individual effort and reward. Uh, those are generally called conservatives or Republicans. And then people who generally believe in community and fairness. Um, and those people are generally called progressives and Democrats. And so 
the truth is America wants and needs both of those impulses mm-hmm. um, and both of those personality types in order to make good decisions. It's sort of like we wish for every child, uh, two parents, one who says, Johnny, we love you no matter what. And the other who says, Johnny, we need you to do better in math. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> you, re- you really need both of those influences on Johnny's life. Johnny, you're wonderful. We love you. That's uh, maybe the communitarian, egalitarian, progressive Democrat. And then you need the meritocracy-driven conservative to say, Johnny, get your grades up in math, buddy. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I think, I mean, I think that it, I think, Yes. I mean, what what we need are people that are, I mean, everyone has blind spots, right? Like, that's the way I see it, too. Like, maybe we have one parent that sees all the, that, that sees the sympathetic reading of Johnny's explanation for why he was late home from school. And we have one parent who's skeptical about Johnny's reasons why he's late home from school. Um, but the truth, yeah. the truth is somewhere between there, right? Um, and in some cases, like, I, I mean, I, the, the problem, of course, is that it, that, that an ideal situation requires both sides to be listening to each other. And we, we are not in that space right now. Although I do have a hope that I I really hate the people know this. I hate the term silver lining. I'm just going to say, but the opportunity in this era, the Trump era, that conservatives and, and liberals are talking to each other because we have a shared enemy. You know, like you are a dyed in the wool conservative. You are a conservative, conservative in many ways, but you're no Trump fan. Like we are, we, I think conservatives and liberals are talking to each other these days because of Trump. Right. Because I think there's a new, um, there there are a couple of unifying possibilities. One is there's a new contender on the political uh, stage, a a third uh, that's different than the two I just described. I was just describing uh, communitarian egalitarians, those are progressives and hierarchical individualists, those are conservatives. That's Dan Gahan at Yale's uh, terminology I'm using there. Um, and, and But add to that a third force that's on the scene now, and it's, um, it's uh, populist nationalism. And, and authoritarianism, uh, I think, actually. I think both conservatives and progressives recognize it as a very dangerous force, um, that when you have uh, a populist nationalism going on, where you've got what's clearly populist, um, you know, in other words, just trying to pick up on whatever passions are out there and fan them up into a real flame. Um, and, and then you combine it with this sort of sense of, uh, of, uh, of, of pretty extreme nationalism that, uh, you know, fear of other people and shutting ourselves off and building walls and, and keeping people out um, and, and trying to get to the pure, that that's really dangerous for both conservatives and progressives. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, obviously I agree. But I'm also curious, though, so that one of the things you know, that I, I'm hopeful about this opportunity we have in talking to each other about our shared foe, but sometimes I wonder, um, you know, what are the possibilities for our partnership across an ideological line um, you know, absent this foe, like if 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 we want to grow this relationship, d- does this moment lead to a continued conversation? And I have a, a specific question for you that I think relates to that, which is that so you became, you know, a climate change activist after being a skeptic denier. 
And I wonder, did that, was that the end of a journey for you? Or have you found yourself continuing, I don't want to say moving left, I don't want to characterize it as an ideological shift, but I just, I think belief is a web, you know? And if you pull on one string, a lot of other things get pulled with it. And so I just wonder if you've, you have seen in yourself other kinds of changes in outlook that have come with being a more open-minded person, maybe in general. Well, yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, so for example, you know, um, uh, when, when it, when it comes to, um, uh, things like, uh, um, respecting uh, gay folks and uh, just saying, you know, we're gonna we're gonna respect love um, and uh, you know let it let it bloom. Uh, that is uh, that's that's that comes from some of that uh, metamorphosis too, I suppose. Um, in uh, I've also seen it though in the other way around, which is I was just on the phone yesterday with a supporter. Um, who uh, is a, a liberal Democrat by all of his uh, financial giving uh, to contra- contributions to campaigns. And so he's talking about how what we need in this country is more investment because investment is going to make this happen in climate change. And he's going on and on about how we've got to untax capital and we've got to get more investment going. And I, I stopped and said, uh, you, you sound like a conservative. <laughs> and he said, uh, well, yes, actually, in the two years I've been working on this very intensely, I've become much more conservative in my mm. views about how to deal with the economy. Mm. And so um, it's because he looked into something, you know, the, 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 in the case of climate change, I mean, I, I, th- I think climate change is a great case study of what you're talking about, because there's a real opportunity in answer to your question about whether this moment can continue once the common foe leaves, which is populist nationalism, which I believe is going to burn out. Mm. Once people realize that you can't build anything with pitchforks and torches, Mm. which have now gone all the way into the Oval Office, um, and all you've got is just fire in there, um, they will turn back to conservatives and progressives and say, now, you people who have ideas about how to build, can you please help us? Mm. And so the the perfect way for conservatives and progressives to work together on something is in climate change, because my friend who just was, after two years of intense work on this, has moved considerably to the right in terms of his views about how to spur the investment in these new clean energies. And somebody like me, who some would perceive as having moved left to be concerned about climate change, are actually just moving toward a commonly held solution that fits for the values of both tribes. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's important. You, you, what you described, I think, is a really important insight, which is that this idea that belief is a web and if you pull one strand, other strands get pulled too, has to work in both directions. I think if we want to have the op- have the opportunity to change someone else's mind we need to be open to ourselves to ourselves to changing our mind maybe not on that issue but in being open to we have to have the same kind of openness in accepting other points of view and allowing that there may be another solution 
you know, because if you yeah. if you don't have that in any part of your life, I just think you have a, you're going to have a really hard time getting people to listen to you. Yeah. I mean, you know, where I think somebody that's displaying this right now, and this is going to sound strange, maybe coming from a conservative, but I think that President Obama has done a good job of trying to say that about his health care package. You know, is if you can improve it, I'm happy to hear it. Um, you know, and so uh, that's that's been a good uh, teachable moment of his openness to saying, okay, listen, if surely it can be improved, show us how, yeah. and then let's do it. Um, you know, and um, I, I hope in his post presidency that he can um, he can continue to model that because I think that would be very helpful to the republic. I I'm looking forward to leadership from him in the post presidency as well. But I'm I'm I think it's wow it's a tough row for him in a way. Like he's such a he you know we we'd have a whole other separate conversation about how what we see in the Oval Office right now is a reaction to you know him, uh, and that I'm sure is what is staying his hand a little bit in being active right now. But um, we are out of time. I would I could talk to you. A lot more. I I want to have you back and talk more about the issue, the idea of evangelism more generally, and how that informs uh, climate change. Because I I think you know what you're doing is evangelism, and that is actually what we're all doing when we try to share our beliefs with someone else. You know, like it is a form of evangelism. You're trying to spread the good news. Yeah. And and it, I just to go back to again, like I feel like it's so much more successful when you do it with an open hand. You know, and not at the not at the point of a not at, not the end of a pointing finger, and it sounds like that is what you have discovered too. Yeah, that is uh, that's that's exciting. That is that's a rich topic uh, to explore there. All right, um, well, we'll have you back. Um, thanks again for joining me, Bob Inglis. Republic. I think you got in the name of the organization a lot, but I'll say it again: Republic in Republic Ian. Republician.org. Yes, yes, yes. Well, it's <laughs> wonderful to be with you. Anna. Thank right. you. Thanks so much, Bob. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. So the thing about um, giving out the show's email address uh, when I do the credits at the end, I'll give it out now too. It's withfriendslikepod at gmail.com is that um, you get some unsolicited resumes, uh, quite a few of them. In fact, if I was going to do hiring though, um, I think I would rather use ZipRecruiter. I mean, it is, I just have a taste from from giving you, you my email address just now, I have a taste of what it must be like if you just put your job out there for the world to respond to. ZipRecruiter is better. For one thing, it gets it out to job sites um, with just one click, hundreds of job sites. And their powerful technology efficiently manages the right people to the job um, better than anyone else. And you don't have to go through all the resumes. They will pick the resumes, the best people out for you. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, over 80% of the jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage all in one place. Like that would also be really helpful too if I was hiring to be able to like, you know, rate the candidates in some easy fashion rather than having a Gmail account uh, filled with attachments. ZipRecruiter's easy to use dashboard is just that. Now, find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs to ZipRecruiter for free. That is right, for free. 
Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth Stoker Brunig. She is a writer and editor at the Washington Post. She writes often about Christianity and politics, and that is why I have asked you here today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. You wrote a piece uh, not too long ago about uh, a series of um, really, I don't know, how do you want to describe the, the series of things that happened to you? Um, the uh, The period where um, my husband lost his job and we were having a baby and there were a bunch of just sort of like stressful but ordinary life events. Um, and then my husband's sister was murdered. Yeah. Um, yeah. That happened last summer, about a year ago now. Um, it was very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, and it was a period where I was doing a lot of praying. Um, and I sort of was frustrated by it um, because... You know, prayer is communication, um, and you expect a response in kind. You, you know, you're asking sometimes for things, for help, for strength. Um, and up until that point, I mean, I'd never had anything that bad happen to me before, at least not all at once, mm-hmm. um, and not, you know, in a position where I felt so overwhelmed. Um, and so I didn't uh, I didn't really know what to do. I didn't really know how to pray about it. Um how I should feel about it. And it was a period where, you know, I started to feel like maybe God was listening and just didn't want to respond. And that was really hard. Um, Did you have prayer as part of your life prior to that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I pray every day. Yeah. Um, And I've always, you know, been religious since I was a kid. Um, so I've always prayed, but you know, when you, when you're in periods like that, where there are sort of inexplicable, really bad things going on, um, that are hard to integrate into your life and into your story about yourself and other people, you know, the way that you pray, I think has to change. Um, and it's hard to figure out how that should work on your own. I think. Did you figure out a way for it to change? So I started relying much more heavily on um, my church. You know, I always thought, you know, hey, in the Catholic Church especially, we have all kinds of um, sort of set prayers that are there for you. And so it's not difficult to know how you're supposed to pray. Um, You just say the Our Father or Hail Mary or something like that. And, you know, there are all kinds of prayers that um, saints have put down over the years and so on and so forth. And um, you know, you can always refer yourself to those, but I just felt like nothing was, you know, quote unquote working, mm-hmm. um, and didn't know what I was doing wrong. And, uh, and I spent a lot of time in confession actually, um, and found that really helped. And, and I think that the most helpful takeaway I got at that time from, from the priest to my, from my confessor was that, you know, faith can be really painful mm-hmm. and prayer is part of faith, right? You don't, pray in the absence of faith. Generally, you pray because you think you're being heard or you want to be heard and you have some hope that you'll be heard. Um, And sometimes that can actually add to the pain because you know that it's possible that uh, God could just fix everything or could solve it. It could make you feel better or make other people respond better. Um, But that's not what happens necessarily. And so you're praying and you're you're looking for help and actually it can be adding... um, adding to the difficulty, adding to the suffering. 
and it can tear at you. And uh, and that was something that I had to realize that that, that this suffering, the the pain, part of it was that faith can be difficult, that it can be a challenge, that it can be trying. Um, and I think at that point, uh, you know, you look at stories of martyrs and saints and realize, you know, we don't have it that bad <laughs> um, in our lives generally. Um, but but that their experiences do have something to say to the ordinary person, that you don't have to be martyred to have an experience of faith that is, you know, adjacent to that. Um, and that was helpful for me to realize. So I have a couple of different thoughts. One is that it, I, so personally, um, I started praying because it w- I was told to. Um, and I actually did pray without faith. I mean, without conscious faith, I would say. Um, you know, I was told as part of my recovery, like that's part of it. Like you got to pray. It's like one of the one of the pieces of instruction you get. You know, it's mandatory. Um, and I said to my counselor at the time that I did not believe, really. And she said, "I don't care. That's belief. Belief is optional." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, "Well, then, what's the point?" And she said, "Well, you can pray for faith if you want." But also, this is just about acknowledging that you can't fix things on your own. Like, this is just an out loud, you know, acknowledgement that you're not the one in complete control. Like, any prayer, even a foxhole prayer, a thoughts and prayers prayer, any prayer, if you were, if your prayer for a parking place, you know, (laughs) every single prayer, whether it's said with real, quote unquote, real belief or not, is an acknowledgement that. I am not the most powerful thing in the universe, that there's something more greater than me out there. Right. It's a prayer is an exercise in in humility. All prayers are an exercise in humility. Um, So my experience is a little, was kind of backwards, right? Like, so I was told to pray. So I prayed and um, I gave myself the reasoning uh, I'd read somewhere that, uh, you know, addiction is all about, patterns in the brain, like worn down patterns in the brain, like almost literally, you know, neural pathways. And that part of getting better is that you have to create new ones. And so I kind of told myself, well, prayer is helping me create new neural pathways. I have a scientific reason to be praying. (laughs) (laughs) But I also prayed for faith because I was like, you know, it would be great to believe this is working. (laughs) It would be great to be saying these prayers and to believe that it made a difference. And the strange thing is, and perhaps, you know, a cynical, even more science-based person than myself would say that I just fooled myself into it. I just, you know, some kind of self-hypnosis. But I kind of prayed my way into faith. Um, huh. Not because my prayers were answered exactly, because one of the things that I was instructed to do with my prayers was I couldn't pray for any personal gain. So um, that kind of took a lot off the table. <laughs> but, um, well, one of the things that happened is that, and this is not going to make, uh, you know, make a difference to many, many people out there, but I did stay sober. And so I was like, well, at least something's working, right? Like, yeah. like it's, I, it, prayer is working on some level. Um, and that's a miracle. So I'll keep doing it. And I've just been able to, you know, grow my faith from there. But the place that, but the role that prayer has played has been that I do it and I don't expect 
an answer and I don't expect to feel like I'm being heard. Those rare occasions when I feel it are, I mean, they're incredibly rare. <laughs> I would say like there's been two times in my life where I felt like someone was listening. And that might have just been like, I think, I think uh, Dickens in a, 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 a talks about Ebenezer Scrooge thinking the ghost might be a little bit of underdone potato, perhaps. And sometimes I wonder if my feeling of the presence of God was just an upset stomach. But um, but that's made my prayer practice something that has been incredibly helpful to me, though, in times that are truly terrible. And I wonder, so your experience having to go through this this series of really tough events and having the, your sense of not being listened to feel so painful. What did that do to your faith moving forward when things aren't so bad? Well, for one, thank you for sharing that with me. It is very, very interesting. And, and coming at it from a perspective of addiction and recovery is very different um, than, you know, sort of a typical pastoral situation. Um, and so that's really fascinating. And I'm very heartened by the idea, by the way, that you can pray yourself into faith. I think that's good news for a lot of people, um, and, it, and it, it might be very it might be very helpful outside of an addiction recovery setting. As a matter of fact, and and maybe is more frequent uh, more frequent of an occurrence than I give it credit for. Um, but sort of going forward, um, I sort of changed my expectations somewhat as to what an answered prayer is like, um, and and it, you know in a very simple way, and that is that. You know, when someone in your life is hurting, when they're in a lot of pain, oftentimes there's nothing you can do about it. You think about a friend going through a divorce or um, losing a child or a family member or something like that. There's nothing you can do. The only thing you can do is say that I'm here and I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for anybody who's ever been in a situation like that and had those sorts of words of comfort... um, from friends or family members, um, you know, they help. At least you're not alone. And with prayer, I think that's oftentimes one of the most exceptional takeaways is the comfort and the peace you have just knowing that you're being heard, that you're not alone. You have to trust that God is merciful and that God is loving. He doesn't like what people go through when they're going through periods like that, you know, those are things that human beings inflict on one another. God doesn't desire that. Um, And sometimes it's just as much as accepting that comfort, accepting that God wishes it weren't so, and that's not what he intended, and that he's listening. And that can be, you know, that can be enough. It doesn't have to be a magic wand, you know, solving everything. It can be as much as, I'm so sorry. And I do think that that is, you know, the closest I've ever felt to understanding what the church is getting at with, you know, the message of Christ's mercy. Mm. It can be as subtle as that. As I'm so sorry, and I wish it weren't that way, and I didn't intend that for you. Then that can be enough. And I think that a you know a more mature faith has to integrate that fact that sometimes that's that's all there is, and it's not nothing. Um, the sympathy of the creator of the universe is quite something. <laughs> yeah, I, I think of it also. I mean, it's it's not just sympathy, right? It's love. Um, what 
you know, what, what I get out of prayer. Uh, I recognize that it's also, it's sort of on me to feel heard. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I can't expect that. I, I think in some ways our, our great religions do a disservice when we hear stories of, you know, angels visiting and incredible feeling of peace pouring over me. And, you know, they kind of build it up a lot, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, really that peace actually comes from my faith. It it comes from me believing. It doesn't come from an action being performed upon me. Like yeah. that love is there for me to accept. Whether or not I choose to accept it is on me. So I can have the peace of that love and understanding if I believe that it's there. Yeah. Because it's only on the most rare occasions is it going to be that God, you know, overtly taps you on the shoulder and lets you know. <laughs> yeah. Here, I have some miracles for you. Would would you like today? You know. Um, other than that, it's just all, I mean, it's it's what we're swimming in and it's it's the water we swim in and we can choose to acknowledge it or not, but it's there. I think that's right as well. And I, and I, I think there's so much of, um, so much of faith relies on the, the communities of people mm-hmm. um, that we have. And I think it's really easy to underrate um, how important other people are in, in sort of like, you know, establishing and shoring up and keeping faith alive. Um, but especially in really difficult times, um, it's so important to have a community of faithful, you know, mm-hmm. faithful people around you. And they don't have to be the exact same denomination or practice in the exact same way. Um, but people who are, you know, also believers in, in some respect who are willing, you know, to be with you. I think that's very important. It was important for me um, because, you know, in isolation, it can be very easy to feel like your faith is slipping or, or that there's no reason to keep on this way. But part of what's great about a community of faith believers is you can see that God has touched other people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so even though it's difficult in the moment or it's difficult for the foreseeable future, the fact that God has touched other people and that God has helped other people, um, you know, sometimes do similar things, um, directly or indirectly, only through their faith or through some kind of intervention, uh, that was really helpful for me. And I, I talked to a lot of my friends about things I hadn't talked to them about before during that time. Um, friends who've had problems with infertility, um, can't start their families, and, and friends who have had serious, serious um, pain in their lives that we hadn't discussed because it's hard and weird. Um, we talked about it then. And we talked about it in the context of prayer and in the context of waiting for help that seemed like it was never going to come. And that meant a lot to me. And I think that uh, that's also that community of believers, even if it's not exact same belief, and even if it's not belief, even called belief in a way, is what the power of the thoughts and prayers cliche is, is that it is powerful to know that someone is thinking about you. Yeah, you know, to be recognized and to have your pain be recognized by another human being is a, is a is a powerful and healing thing. You know, I mean, I I have lots of friends who are not believers. <laughs> um, oh yeah, so so do I. Yeah, sure. and and that's whatever we all respect each other. And I find myself when they're going through hard times. Um, something I say to people who I know are fellow believers is, "I'll keep you in my prayers." 
what I say often to my friends who are not believers is you're in my thoughts, which is the exact same fucking thing. <laughs> it is. It's just I am holding you in my thoughts. I, I, am, I am feeling warmth towards you. Yeah. I think so. I have a lot of friends who are um, not believers, and uh, and I still tell them I'm praying for them. <laughs> and uh, and and I've found that there's a lot of gratitude for that because I think there's a recognition that you know even if they think it's you know quote unquote not working, nonetheless, that it's you know someone thinking about you and being there for you and acknowledging what you're going through, and that still means a lot. Um, I've never had any any friends who who don't uh, believe give me a hard time about that or respond with anything, but total sincerity and gratitude. So. Yeah, yeah, I mean I don't I don't expect people to react badly. I just sort of feel like I don't I want them to know that that is the thing that I'm doing for them. Yeah. You yeah. know, that I, I think that that's I, exactly right. I am holding you in my thoughts, which sometimes can be a little more I think I think that that sometimes people who aren't believers hear that, you know. Yeah. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. Basically, all the ads that I'm reading today make me feel old because um, they are all solutions to problems that I that existed for people 10, 15 years ago, uh, and we didn't know how they would be solved. One of those problems is standing in line for tickets, which is a thing, children, that people used to do. <laughs> I think you think of it now more as for getting a new phone or sneakers, but that people used to do that for concerts, believe it or not. Like go to a venue. I have done it. Go to a venue and people would literally camp out for tickets. Now maybe you've heard like your older brothers and sisters or grandparents talk about that, but you don't have to do that anymore. Uh, Seat Geek is probably the best you know, way around that. Uh, they have a seamless mobile experience. You can buy and sell tickets in two taps. It is a better, simpler way. You know, you don't no sleeping bags involved. They help you find the best seat at the best prices. I've actually used it. Um, they have a really uh, intuitive way of looking at a stadium and picking out the best seats. Uh, they're priced accordingly. You can kind of decide ahead of time, like what, how much do I really, really want to see Coldplay? As people have heard in the past, I don't particularly want to see them, but I'm getting tickets anyway because my husband, who I think is just barely old enough to have remember camping out for tickets, is a huge Coldplay fan. Uh, there is nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. Now, like I said, I have SeatGeek app on my phone, and it is really, really easy. I do find their ratings um, and pricing system to be the most helpful part of it. But it is designed from the ground up to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. It saves time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value. That's what I was talking about um, before. They put it probably better. They grade every ticket based on value to help you immediately find the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports to concerts to comedy to theater. And best of all, my listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code FRIENDS. Again, that's promo code FRIENDS, and you will get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. I actually want to transition a little bit to this idea of sustaining prayer, of the community of believers. Um prayer, how it changes us. I I pray for, and you mentioned praying for other people. 
I'm going to put a controversial statement out there, which is also okay. true. I pray for Donald Trump. Um, I was taught when I was taught to pray that I had to pray for people that I resent. And yeah. I had to pray for people that I wanted to hate. And I had to pray for my enemies. And uh, I would, I guess I'm just going to go ahead and say, like, I guess, you know, Trump considers me the enemy. So, uh-huh. um yeah, he's. I and I don't really consider him my enemy, but he is. I would say I I do resent him. Um, and people ask me what form that takes, and it it, I, you know, it's weird. Like I have this maybe almost superstitious kind of feeling about it because I don't want to pray for him to get what he wants. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> like that that seems like it might not be good for other people. Um, I often pray that he have a successful presidency. That, yeah. that our country uh, grow and prosper and heal underneath his uh, administration. I mean, you sounds like you also um, are familiar with and maybe even try to put into practice the idea of praying for, you know, those on the, you're on your bad side. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it's like it's a mortification thing on one level. Praying for people whom you resent or your own enemies, that changes you. Um and, you know, when you have to come up with something good to say at any at any point, but especially in the context of speaking um, directly to God about people you don't like, um, you know, it, it forces you in some ways to humanize them and to think about the implications of your bad relationship with them. So if I found myself unable to pray for Trump to have a successful presidency, it would, you know, cause me to reflect on the fact that, you know, my resentment of Trump or my investment in politics is causing me to, you know, put the interests of my countrymen and fellow citizens second. And that, you know, there should be some due reflection on that if that is the case. <laughs> um, the night that Trump won, I was really surprised. I think probably everybody was. Um, and I had a little baby at the time. My daughter was like six months or so. Um, and I thought, wow, that's crazy. Donald Trump. I mean, you know, I was especially worried about foreign policy um, all these thoughts went through my head, and I thought, you know, he doesn't really have any diplomatic experience. How is he going to get along with other countries, you know? Um, and and I did pray for him, and uh, and I didn't pray for him to get what he wants or for him to have the uh, agenda that he has set before him pan out, but I prayed for God's will to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, assuming that God only wills the good for us, which is what I believe, uh, you know, I prayed that God would, you know, work through him to do his own will, um, and that Trump would be receptive to that. And and I think that is the best thing you can hope for anyone, is that God is able to work through them to do the good for them that he wants to do. Um, and that's what I hope for Trump. And, and you know, who knows what form that takes? Only, only God knows. Um, you can speculate that it means maybe reining in some impulses <laughs> um, or something like that, um, but whatever must be done for God to work through him to do good, I I hope that happens. Um, and I hope it happens with me and with everyone else. Um, but, yeah, I, I do try to, and, you know, there are, like, much more petty and ridiculous personal squabbles where I also pray for people I don't like mm-hmm. um, with less high stakes than the future of the country. Um, and And I do try to make a point to do that, um, you know, not only because it's what Jesus asked us to do, but because it can really help solve those conflicts. It can help resolve some of those really negative feelings. And then, you know, that can make it easier to deal with people. Um, not always, but sometimes. 
Um, so that's always my hope. I think in terms of Trump and, and other kinds of like big ask prayers, although, you know, the big asks can also be about relatively, you know, small things. Sure. But future the country bullshit. Um, <sighs> I think that the prayer that I have sort of settled on, which is about, you know, that the country prosper and grow and and yeah. heal in his uh, presidency. Number one, I sometimes feel like I'm being like a little passive aggressive when I say that mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm kind of like, and that could mean a lot of different things for Trump himself. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not actually praying for, like, I'm praying for the country and I'm, I am, you know, kind of being maybe like that could mean he gets impeached if, you know, that could be the form that this prayer takes really. Um, but having to to pray that the way that it changes me is something you touched on too, which is that it forces me to think about what is my real value here. If Trump was to somehow, let's just you know, the imaginary, uh, you know, future, uh, he endorsed single payer health care and he uh, got um, you know Bannon out of there and he you know reinstituted he re ratified the Voting Rights Act, um, all. Things that I am for, am I? Would I be able to accept and rejoice in that, right? Yeah. Or do I have something invested in Trump being my enemy? Which, yeah. you know, at this point, it, it's really it's almost hard to not feel a little invested in that. For those of us that are appalled by him, it if you on this day to day drumbeat of terrible news. There's some there's yeah. part of us that gets invested in having that enemy. Yeah, Matt and I, my husband and I talked a lot about that um, when he was elected. And, you know, part of the issue with Trump is it's so hard to predict what he's going to do. And so much of what he's going to do has to do with factors that are sort of random and bizarre, like who he has recently liked or talked to. Yes. Um, <laughs> that, you know, it kind of is up in the air. And, and you know, we had a conversation where I said, you know, if Trump somehow gets in a situation where he, you know, endorses single-payer, you know, universal health care and uh, actually does rebuild infrastructure and invests a lot of money into job creation, you know, would it be possible for us to say that he had a fairly successful presidency? Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, I, I, of course, hold out hope that that will be the case, not because of the feelings I have about Trump, but because of what it would mean for everybody else. And I would have to deal with my private feelings of, you know, well, I still resent this person because of the way it unfolded or because of the impact it had um, socially, you know, in terms of normalizing certain modes of behavior Mm -hmm. that I'm not comfortable with and I don't like. Um, But, you know, I still would rather him do those things that would put me in that tough position than not do them. I, I would rather be in the tough position of having to figure out how to respond favorably to genuinely good policy than the position I'm in now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is, to be fair, it is this sort of situation where prayer does come naturally. Um. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so we're out of time, but I want to thank you for coming on and being uh, so forthright. In your discussion of prayer, it's um, one of those things that I feel like I'm still getting comfortable talking about, but it's easy to talk about it with you. Oh, thank you so much. I, I so appreciate it. 
Well, that's it for the show. As usual, I have to thank you for making it this far. I know I sometimes actually kind of turn off a podcast once it finishes up with the main part. So you are hearing the credits, um, which uh, I give you credit for. If you want to follow Bob Inglis on Twitter, he is at Bob Inglis, which is at B-O-B-I-N-G-L-I-S. Elizabeth Brunig is at at E. Brunig. That is at E-B-R-U-E-N-I-G. You want to follow the show? We're at crooked underscore friends. And you can also send mail to the show. That email address is withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. Again, that's withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. I do read every email you send. Uh, We are working on a system of getting some responses out there, but you are being heard. Especially when I thank those of us who have written in with questions or uh, to describe problems that they've had with how relationships have had an impact on their politics or politics have had an impact on their relationships. We are storing some of those up for an upcoming show where we're going to have listeners call in and get some feedback from an expert-ish guest. At least someone has some idea know what they're talking about or maybe just a good perspective anyway stay tuned for that show we will be back next week with friends like these this is a big year the ohio lottery's golden anniversary 50 years of excitement of growing jackpots and crossed fingers 50 years of funding for schools of changed lives and brightened days 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.